okay, the question your audience will ask is that, what is the significance of uh, having former uh, heads of China's space institutions or aerospace engineers to becoming heads of provinces, right? So I think the message that President Xi is sending out to the Communist Party leadership is that if you succeed in a technology stream, and if you succeed, for example, in building China into an aerospace power, you will be rewarded by positions of power within the Communist Party of China itself. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, Downlink listeners. In this episode, We're turning our attention outward to what the U.S. Department of Defense likes to call the, quote, pacing threat, unquote, to China. It's also a good time to look east because in the last weeks, there have been a series of high-profile events in the Indo-Pacific region, such as the Association of Southeast Asian Nations Summit in Cambodia, the Group of 20 meeting in Indonesia, and the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in Thailand. And on Thursday, the United Nations-China Second Global Partnership Workshop on Space Exploration and Innovation wrapped up four days of discussions and presentations on Hainan Island. These meetings need to be seen in the context of Xi Jinping's third five-year term at the helm of the Chinese Communist Party. He started his term a little more than a month ago by giving a two-hour speech to the 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. And at that event, she kicked to the curb every figure who has not kissed his ring with appropriate enthusiasm. What's more, the newly configured very top of the Communist Party leadership is also notable for two more features. First, the complete absence of women. And second, the majority of those rewarded with high-profile portfolios have a deep background in space or aerospace engineering. To get a deeper understanding of the era of Xi, space, and defense, I spoke with Namrata Goswami and Malcolm Davis. Here's our conversation. Hi, Malcolm. Nami, it's great to have you both back on the podcast. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you very much, Laura. It's great to be here, Laura. Looking forward. You both have been guests on the podcast before, but for those new listeners, take a moment and introduce yourselves. Nami, why don't you start first? Sure, Laura, thank you. So my name is Namrata Goswami, and I study international relations, space policy, and great power competition. I also teach at the Thunderbird School of Global Management for their space policy course. And uh, recently, I co-authored a book called Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space with Peter Garretson. I look forward to our interaction today. And Malcolm, what about you? Well, I'm a senior analyst in defence strategy and capability at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in Canberra, Australia. And my focus is on space policy and space security, uh, more broadly, future of war, future military technology and high level geopolitics. So I've been focused on space for most of my career and I'm now getting a chance to really dive down deep into the policy aspects, which is absolutely fantastic, especially given that Australia is a rapidly rising uh, space power in its own right. And Malcolm, 
isn't Aspie about to host a masterclass on space? I mean, let's give it a plug. Plus, I know oh, that Namrata is speaking at the event. Yes, uh, on the 28th and the 29th of November in Sydney at the Sydney Opera House, um, Aspie is hosting a Space uh, National Security and Defence Masterclass and also a 1.5-track dialogue, uh, of which Namrata is speaking and I'm also participating in. It's going to be a fantastic event. Uh, we've got some really excellent speakers from all over the world talking all things how space, uh, defence, national security works with the commercial sector, not just in Australia but globally. Uh, and it's a great opportunity to sort of sit down and talk about uh, you know, where space is going as a key area. I think space in Australia is certainly uh, moving rapidly along. There's broad support from the government uh, for developing this area. Defence is very much focused on space. So this is going to be a really good opportunity, and there are still some tickets available. So if you go to the ASPE website, uh, you can book yourself a ticket and and then come to the, uh, to the masterclass on the 1.5 track. Anyway, on to China. So it's been a really busy period in the Indo-Pak region, and there are implications for space in terms of defense and security, and also even diplomacy. And to top off the list is the recent opening of the 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. And yep, that is a mouthful. There are even more outcomes, broadly speaking, but starting with the simple stuff, we know China's President Xi Jinping secured a third five-year term, and because of changes made to the Constitution in 2018, he may remain president for life. But there's more. His appointments to the Politburo and other high-ranking positions have a couple of nicknames, such as the Aerospace Clique or the Cosmos Club. Who are these guys? Namrata, you've you've been tracking this. Yeah, sure. So I think what is so interesting and actually important to note is that the in the 20th Party Congress, what was observed was the prioritization of space, science, technology, artificial intelligence, nuclear propulsion technology. And President Xi in his speech, as well as the being representation of the Communist Party of China as a general secretary, very clearly highlighted the critical importance of that for the internal organization of the Communist Party itself. And he mentioned that several times in his speech. So the people that he actually have included in the Politburo, for example, so among the six uh, Politburo members, actually several have science and technology backgrounds. I'll name two. So the most notable is, of course, uh, Xinxiang Party Secretary Ma Jingru and uh, Zhejiang Party Secretary Yuan Xia Zheng. And so Ma was vice president of the Chinese Academy of Space Technology, which is CAST, which is actually one of the key uh, not just policy making, but actually building the hardcore stuff, building rockets, building satellites. So he was basically in the leadership position of that particular organization. And what is so critical was that Ma was the chief engineer of the Shizhuang 5 satellite project. So he himself is an engineer by training. And so he went on to become the deputy manager of the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, as well as director. And this is critical. This is where I think we need to think about the reorganization of the party. So he was also in leadership position 
of the State Administration for Science, Technology, and Industry for National Defense. He was a director. And SUSTIN is actually the main policymaking body and also the main uh, direction giving body for the China National Space Administration. So he was actually at a very high level. And so, and the other person that I think we need to keep note of is uh, Zhu Zhuang, who's a graduate of the Beijing Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. And he was the vice president of the China Aerospace Science and uh, Technology Corporation. And he was also president of the China Academy of Space Technology, very similar to Ma. Now, what is critical, again, from a grand strategic thinking as to what this means for the Chinese Communist Party. So one actually contributed to China's Chang'e lunar mission, China's first re-entry space module, as well as he's a big proponent of the China-Russia space cooperation. So now he's at a very high level to push that particular strategic relationship even more, right? And so that's the Politburo. Now, if you look at the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China, there are about 205 members, of which about 29 new members have science and technology background. So I'll end by saying that when you look at that particular composition, what is critical to realize is that First of all, the original construction or constitution of the Communist Party of China based on purity of doctrine, purity of uh, an adherence to the Communist Party ideology or the, or the Marxist ideologies seems to be there. But what is given more and more focus is the ability of the members to actually lead in science and technology innovation that falls within President Xi's Made in China 2025 and his innovation strategy. So this is something that came out as a very interesting aspect of the 20th Party Congress. And Malcolm, what does this tell you about Xi's strategy and, and what role does space play in it? Look, I think Namrat has you know, perfectly uh, outlined some of the key personnel changes, which uh, she's obviously much more on top of that than I am, which is great. Um, but uh, I think that uh, what it does say at the high strategic level, uh, or if you want to think about this at the grand astro strategic level, is um, that China recognises the importance of the space domain as being central to power in the 21st century. Uh, and that's not just here and now, that's going forward to the end of the century and beyond. They recognize that space is a critical domain that they have to lead in, that they have to dominate. And so therefore, they're not just thinking about satellites, they're thinking about, you know, uh, Earth, Moon, economic struct structures, they're thinking about presence, they're thinking about the ability to deploy capability and personnel um, within the broader environment of the space domain. So they want to put in place the key leadership uh, that would make that happen, that would drive China's industrial, military industrial uh, infrastructure towards becoming a dominant space power. And they talk about the China space dream, which is uh, very much about China becoming a dominant space power, certainly by 2049, if not before. I think this is all in part uh, related to that, that they do see space as important. I mean, it's very significant, for example, that they have decided uh, to replace the Long March 9 rocket with a reusable rocket rather than going with an old expendable rocket. You know, that suggests forward thinking. That recognises that actually, no, you can't get away with uh, hideously expensive expendable vehicles like SLS anymore. You've got to go down a sustainable path for ex expansion into space. Um, 
So they understand they get space as important. And I think that the Americans do too, which is why you have Space Force. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, it's a case of you've now got two dominant space powers emerging, China and the United States, both competing. It's not a space race per se, like the old uh, US-Soviet space race, but it is a competition that is more open-ended and I think will become more intense because it will cover more areas rather than just putting boots on the moon, uh, you know, and uh, flags and footprints. So this is a very significant development. And yeah, I think I'll quickly add Laura to Malcolm's point about the Long March 9. And so, uh, and it's interesting that they just announced that they're going to make that reusable, right? That 140 metric tons capability and no more expendable. They've been thinking about it since 2025, but now they have come up officially and said that that's going to be a reusable rocket by 2030. I think the critical point that Malcolm pointed out, I think needs to be highlighted, and which is that if you look at the mission goals of the Long March 9, it's not really about sending Chinese taikonauts to the moon. If you see the first mission that they have identified, especially the designer Long Hao, he points out that the first mission of the Long March 9 would be its uh, possibility and capability with a very low cost launches to build space-based solar parallel satellites in low earth orbit. And then once that mission is accomplished to showcase a possibility to build a base on the moon using the same launch system. And then he connects it to how that actually helps China in terms of economic power. And because the understanding is that if China becomes an economic powerhouse, that inadvertently leads to the development of its military capability and influence mechanisms. So it's very interesting how they actually perceive their program, including a rocket like Long March 9, to the larger goal of economic competition. And how does that even compare with, let's say, the U.S. national security strategy? I see it when I when I looked at these names and, and where they were, I mean, you've got space guys in China that are now heads of provinces, you know, like Xinjiang province or Zhejiang. It seems like it's a real top to tail look at creating a foundation for space, you know, out from, you know, the back of beyond right in through into the urban centers and and into the military complex. But I'm not sure that our national security strategy is kind of looking at it like that. No, I, I don't think it is. And I think that the Chinese are probably more switched on to what, what broadly is called critical and emerging technologies, um, of which I think space needs to be part of that. Um, space obviously has a, has a long uh, heritage going back to the 1960s, but what's happening now with space is transformational in terms of how we utilise space for economic and industrial purposes, how we do space resource utilisation, uh, you know, modern reusable access to space and so forth. So we have to stop thinking, US has to stop thinking about space in Apollo terms, okay, and shuttle terms, and they need to start thinking about it in 21st century terms. Uh, and I think that, you know, fantastic news about the launch of Artemis 1 and SLS and all that, finally got off the pad, but it's yesterday's rocket. Yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, it, what we're waiting to see is Starship Super Heavy. And I think the Chinese understand the importance of doing space more effectively, more quickly, more efficiently, because that, as you say, opens up space to be able to use for other things, including for um, astro-strategic and uh, astro-economic purposes that builds an industrial base on and around the moon, 
uh, and allows us to do space resource utilization. Space-based solar power becomes possible, which is a game changer once you work out how to beam that energy back to Earth safely. And I think that the Chinese are understanding all this, whereas the US seems to be kind of thinking about, well, let's redo Apollo with a few extra bits. And I think that's a real shame that they haven't really seen that bigger astro-strategic picture that's out there. Some people do, I'm sure. Uh, and I think that when you look at discussions in Space Force, the debate between the brown water and the blue water school of thinking about space, the blue water school get it, okay? The brown water school people are right to say, okay, the here and now is the Leo to Geo environment, but the blue water people get the bigger picture, which is where we have to be headed. And I think Namrata's book with Peter is is kind of really important in that regard because it highlights that big astro-strategic future that's out there, that's there for the taking. And if if the US doesn't take it, the Chinese will. Yeah, I think uh, just to add to Malcolm's points, uh, in a way, if you if you compare, okay, the question your audience will ask is that what is the significance of uh, having former uh, heads of China's space institutions or aerospace engineers to becoming heads of provinces, right? So I think the message that President Xi is sending out to the Communist Party leadership is that if you succeed in a technology stream, and if you succeed, for example, in building China into an aerospace power, you will be rewarded by positions of power within the Communist Party of China itself. And I think one way, another example, which I think I can mention is Zing uh, Zhuaglong. He's the head now of the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology, which steers industrial policy for China. But what is important to remember is that he was the deputy general manager of the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corps, uh, which also a big proponent of space exploration and space technology development, right? But but now heading very important divisions. So this also sends out the message that how critical is that capability of science and technology and why that's going to be rewarded in case uh, China uh, basically conceptualizes a policy where science and technology is key. And so it's kind of, so they, they did, I think what happened was that they did this kind of scenario building. That's why I use the word in case around 1990, 1999. And then they actually build into their institutions and their skill sets and their capability. Now, coming to your question about comparison, right? So if you compare the US national security strategy that came out around the same time that President Xi Jinping was giving his speech to the 20th Party Congress, it is so clear the difference of aspirations and ambition, right? So if you look at the US national security strategy, space is not a core national security issue. Cyber is. And then if you look at the paragraphs within the national security strategy, and there is a mention of space in one paragraph, the basic focus of the current administration is space traffic management, space domain awareness, and ensuring that we have international partnership when it comes to access to space, which is not going to be deviated or deterred by this kind of debris uh, problems. If you listen to President Xi Jinping's speech, uh, his speech, his focus is on building China into a Earth Moon superpower where the lunar programs are critical, where deep space probes are really important. And then he when, goes on to say that we need to build this through our investment in future strategic technologies like artificial intelligence, robotics. Nowhere do you find a mention of 
how China needs to become a leader in space traffic management, space debris removal. It's there, but not in the major speech given by him, right? So that's how I make the comparison in terms of ambitions and aspirations. And in fact, if you look at the empirical record that is there in the United Nations, for example, the first committee, uh, China actually voted against any kind of anti-satellite weapon test ban, right? Which recently passed, I think 154 member nations agreed to that. So you can see where their focus and their leadership aspiration is when you compare both Xi Jinping's speech, which is a very important strategic document, and the U.S. national security strategy. You know, when we're talking about speeches and diplomacy out there, you know, I have seen and heard China's wolf diplomats try and score polemic points at various United Nations meetings by saying the United States is militarizing space by virtue of the fact that it now has a, quote, space force, unquote. But since 2015, the People's Liberation Army has had a space force just by another name. What is it and how is Xi's China developing it to support his strategy? Why don't you take this one, Malcolm? Sure. I mean, you're right. Uh, the U.S. Space Force was created in response primarily to China's counter space capabilities and the establishment of the PLA's strategic support force, the PLASIF, in 2015, coming out of that really important uh, Chinese defense white paper that, that year. Um, so, you know, we're, uh, the U.S. is responding to that threat. A lot of people kind of forget that. They kind of ignore that and say, oh, the Trump, you know, created a space force and make a mockery of it. No, it's a serious issue. You know, it's, we, the U.S. had to respond to uh, an emerging challenge from not only the Chinese, but also the Russians with their aerospace forces. Um, and, you know, therefore, what the challenge that the U.S. has now is is working out what its space force is going to do. And I think they're still working their way through it. But the PLA strategic support force is quite well established. It's quite mature. It handles both space and uh, network warfare. So it integrates the two quite correctly because it recognizes that cyber and electronic electromagnetic operations is part and parcel with space counter space capabilities. So they've quite correctly put that together. And it recognizes that space operations and space support is is critical to uh, essentially everything else that happens. Sorry, there's someone on my ringing my doorbell. Um, if you can hear that, uh, uh, so it basically recognizes the, the the centrality of space, and I think the Chinese have have clearly uh, got that in place uh, with the PLA SSF. So it's a question of now the U.S. following and various different other countries following the U.S. and Australia established its Defence Space Command in, in this year. So uh, I think everyone is moving down that path of recognising the importance of space. And so there'll be space forces of some sort to varying degrees emerge over coming years. You know, I know this is going to feel a little pedestrian, but just to clarify, what are the divisions, however, between China's military space sector and its civil and commercial sector? Namrata? Yeah, sure. So uh, if you so this is important again uh, for your audience to realize of just for a general understanding, right? So for China, the concept of division 
for military operational purposes might exist, right? So if you think about it, they have uh, they have uh, five different services, and then they have established now the People's Liberation Army Strategic Support Force that looks at space and cyber, as uh, Malcolm was mentioning. And then they have a clear chain of command there. And so uh, the idea is that the basic premise for establishing the PLA Strategic Support Force in December of 2015 was that the leadership of the state Council and then informed by the Politburo Standing Committee realized that space is emerging as a domain by itself. And that's where Malcolm's point about the 2015 military strategic guidelines and doctrinal change that came about that informed this divisional uh, understanding of why space is critical, because the, that particular doctrine for the first time included space as a force multiplier. So what I'm trying to say is that in terms of military organization, there was a requirement for training, there's a requirement for doctrine, there's a requirement for understanding that space and cyber might go together. But then there is also a focus separately to build the space they call it competency of the services so that they have a culture of where their officers have space expertise that are promoted. And so what they're trying to do is shift it from the other services, for example, the PLA Army or the PLA Navy to actually establishing space institutional memory, training and operational capability. Now, that's where the division of military lies. But then it's different from the U.S. in a sense that when you think about the division between civil, military, commercial, that, that really does not exist in China. So uh, in 2014, the Politburo, for the first time under President Xi Jinping's leadership, established a unit called the Civil Military Fusion Unit. Uh, I think there is a tendency to underplay that, arguing that uh, that is basically for party convenience, I disagree, because if you look at how then they have gone about building their PLA strategic support force, let's take that case, right? So they have put it within the civil military fusion unit and also the civil military integration division. And so what happens is that once you have a PLA SSF trains for operations, they then work together with, say, the state administration for science, technology, industry for national defense, under which is the China National Space Administration. And so there is a fusion of strategic doctrinal grand strategic thinking that comes together, right? And so an example, let me make it even more clear. For example, the uh, one of the uh, head of one of their space-based solar power satellite project is also an officer with the PLA strategic support force. So there is that kind of fusion and that kind of coming together, right? And then in 2021, China passed the national defense law, which made it legally important and mandatory for China's civil and commercial entities, including space startups to work mandatorily for the national defense. So the PLA Strategic Support Force then went ahead and signed memorandum of understanding with several universities and space startups that is not by choice. It's actually legally required for the space startups to work with the PLA Strategic Support Force for the end effects that the Chinese military would want to have, for example, in space, right? So there is a big fusion in terms of institutional coming together. And that is where collaboration with China gets difficult because of the fact that you cannot demarcate which civilian commercial space body is actually civilian commercial and not directed and funded and guided by the military.
I think it's really an interesting point. I didn't realize that there was actually a law that made it mandatory for space startups to link up with the special support forces, aka Chinese space forces, to render services that might be a benefit uh, for defense. I mean, that that there's no choice. I, I don't think that actually is very well understood. Yeah, well, I yeah, didn't know that yeah, either. So, um, yeah. so it does kind of lock them in, doesn't it? You know, they, if they want the funding, if they want the government support, they've got to contribute to the PLA's mission. Uh, so, you know, that's a very sort of, you know, interesting uh, piece of information that, thank you, Namrata, I didn't know that. Yeah, they passed it. They So the Communist Party uh, and the Standing uh, Committee passed it in December of 2020, and it came into effect in January of 2021. So it's a year now. And if you if the language, you can see it. It's very clear that it, it's a criminal offense if you d- don't agree to collaborate and cooperate. So you can be taken to court and tried for treason. I mean, I'm not surprised. Look at the Hong Kong national security law, right? Very similar in terms of language, but this was what was brought about. That's pretty, that's, that's, that's pretty full on. Then in light of that, am I right to think that all of China's military space assets, and I'm even wondering if all of China's space assets in general are really controlled by the strategic support force. And and if so, I mean, how are they using that to support the China Dream strategy? Well, I think I think it's well known fact that um the Chinese space program is inherently controlled by the military. It's completely different to the US, where NASA is entirely separate from uh from the US Air Force and so forth. Um so I think that you know that level of deep integration means that probably every satellite that goes up, apart from maybe the odd satellite that, that is there for pure scientific research, uh, most satellites that go up with the Chinese are have a dual role of some sort. So they might be doing commercial surveillance of you know uh, ocean surveillance, which has a, a civilian scientific application. But they can flick a switch and do and track a carrier battle group uh, when they need to. Uh, it's that sort of flexibility in terms of dual role assets, both in terms of dedicated military satellites, but also you know commercial or civilian satellites. So Beidou is a classic example where it provides a a military uh, a, a central military uh, role in terms of not only precision navigation and targeting, but also timing functions to allow network command and control but it also gives uh china the ability to do a space silk road whereby they can get countries to become dependent on beidou and thus establish beidou ground stations and and so forth so it is very much dual role uh but controlled by the chinese military so now that we've covered all of that ground what can you guys then tell me about china's ground segment And I'm specifically referencing the dozen or so ground stations China has just in South America. I mean, the spatial support force, sorry, the special support force is at least financially involved in in most, if not all of them. And I'm thinking specifically of Espacio Lejano Station in Argentina. I mean, what's really going on here? So I think one thing that China has recognized, uh, and Malcolm mentioned that in terms of Belt and Road Initiative. So I think the Belt and Road Initiative, as we know, was established in 2013 when President Xi Jinping uh, took over uh, 
the general secretaryship of the Communist Party of China and became president of the People's Republic of China and also leader of the Central Military Commission. So I say these different titles because they mean different things. So in his role as president of the People's Republic of China, what he pushed for is this international partnership building through the Belt and Road Initiative, which he then tied to the China dream concept. And then don't forget, he and uh, Premier Li Keqiang then established the Asian Development Infrastructure Bank that looks after infrastructure projects that the BRI might actually go ahead and do. Now, in 2018, they included space in that particular information structure. So what does this mean? Why am I mixed telling the story? So I think most people don't realize that there are about 140 member partners of the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, by extension, China Spatial Information Corridor, which means that China can actually sign agreements to have ground stations in South America, Argentina, Chile. Uh, China actually had a ground station in Sweden as well. Uh, because of its proximity to the Arctic and arguing that the download capability is much, much faster. I think Sweden has recently taken a decision not to extend it, also because Sweden has applied for NATO membership. So there are these complications. I know China was trying to also build a ground station in Australia, and the Australian government, I think, took a decision, correct me if I'm wrong, not to go ahead with that, right? Yeah, it was meant to be in Western Australia, um, but right. uh, and I think it ran for a brief period, but I think it's now been oh, shut down. So. Right. Yeah. So what, what, why does China need all these ground stations? Well, first of all, they are building an entire reconnaissance, intelligence, surveillance capability, and Earth observation capability. They want to become a global power projection uh, nation that is able to deploy forces beyond their beyond line of sight. And also, they are trying to have this similar great power thinking of building bases across, for example, in Africa. So to have ground stations around the world means that your ability to downlink a particular image gets faster, right? And then you're able to also have the possibility of then analyzing that data and uh, using it for your own ISR capability. And so their entire Beto uh, project has an analysis of how that helps them in terms of uh, building their own mapping of the earth, as well as building the capability into their deployment facilities as well. And so that's how the strategic importance of ground stations come in. And it also depends on which country has the ground stations, right? Now, the other important thing that China, beyond just ground station, that China is thinking about is that what about signing uh, agreements with other countries through the Belt and Road to actually be able to then fund spaceports, right, uh, in other countries? Now, we know that there are certain countries that are strategically critical. Somalia, very close to the equator. Indonesia, which is very close to the equator. And they require such funds to build their space infrastructure. So China just recently signed a memorandum of understanding with African Union, a uh, 55-member nation state, and which means that they're going to use their funds through the BRI to then help build African infrastructure, as well as take advantage of the fact that countries are close to the equator. So this is an enormous project of influence building, but not just rhetorical influence. It's basic capability to build into the Chinese space support, uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance as well. So, yeah, so, uh, and I think the, the the point you made about Indonesia is is particularly interesting because you're talking about the Biak Island um, project, where Biak Island is is a small island near part of Indonesia, essentially um, that's right on the equator. So it gets maximum benefit in terms of the Earth's rotation, uh, in terms of cost per kilos to orbit. 
And uh, Elon Musk is trying to establish a spaceport at Biak. But the very fact that the Chinese are interested as well, uh, and that would benefit their uh, efforts to expand their influence across Indonesia is an interesting one. But of course, Biak is home is, is home to uh, people from West Papua. Uh, and there is a, uh, shall we say, an, an insurgency uh, by uh, the West Papuans against the Indonesian government, lots of human rights abuses by the Indonesian government there. So establishing a, a spaceport uh, in Biak Island, whether it's done by Musk or whether it's done by the Chinese, I think uh, could be a potential uh, sort of point of, of conflict, um, point of, of tension in the region. Um, and certainly we would be concerned with either option, to be honest. Um, you know, Australia, I think, has suggested... Uh, Nalamboy, uh, which is about 12 degrees south of, of the equator in, in Northern Territory, is, is, a, is a better choice because it's more politically stable. Uh, but, yeah, it, I know Musk is very keen to do Biak, so I wouldn't be surprised if the Chinese try to go in there and outbid him, and they can do that. They can go in with literally suitcases of money and, and engage in elite capture. Um, and it's really a case of, of which side wins out, the Elon Musk's group or or, or the Chinese. Now, you all know that military tools are usually just a part of any national strategy. You've got influence operations, diplomacy, economic tools, culture, and it was really clear from Xi's October report slash two-hour acceptance speech that Marxism with Chinese characteristics is going to be a mainland export. And I apologize, this is going to be a bit of a long lead-in to the question, but just bear with me, uh, because China is not the only one playing this game. This same week, this November, U.S. President Joe Biden attended the ASEAN meeting. And then just before the G20 meeting in Bali, he met with Xi for a bilateral meeting. Now the media was focused on democratic functions of the U.S. elections, which had just taken place. But that same week, the Artemis One mission, it launched. and. Even as we're recording this, the Orion capsule is on a round-trip voyage out to and beyond the moon. It's supposed to return on December 11th. And the Air Force's Boeing X-37B, which is a super-secret space plane, it landed after 908 days in space. And that's a record. What effect do these missions have on those other tools that, you know, make a grand strategy? Well, look, I think that firstly, the everyone is kind of focusing on the, the Biden G summit as if this is going to provide some sort of reset in the relationship, which is not. And, you know, Prime Minister Albanese, uh, Australian Prime Minister, also had a meeting with, with Xi and everyone was saying, oh, is this a reset? Is this a reset? And of course it's not. Uh, the big geopolitical and geostrategic challenges are still there. You know, Taiwan, South China Sea, Chinese ambitions in the region and so forth. So having a discussion on the G20 sidelines is not going to change anything. And the same goes for space. Uh, you know, we're seeing, uh, you know, sort of China, as we discussed earlier, having big astro-strategic ambitions for, the, for space, for cis-lunar environment. That's going to intensify, particularly if Artemis is delayed, which I think is likely to be the case, uh, the, you know, the, the 
There was an infographic that was released uh, earlier this uh, a couple of weeks ago, which was quite useful, which looked at, you know, Artemis 3 is 2025, and then it kind of gets a bit vaguer going forward uh, after that, further on after that. But there's some suggestion uh, by Chris Bergen, for example, that Artemis 3 could be pushed back to 2028 again. So, you know, if you're starting to get Artemis being more and more delayed, maybe some of the later missions being dropping off the schedule, like what happened with Apollo, suddenly the Chinese have an incentive, well, let's go first. And they bring forward their program a bit to try and see if they can get beat the Americans back to the moon. That's one possible scenario. But even if that doesn't eventuate, I think the Chinese will be hot on the heels of the Americans in terms of, of, of lunar operations. So you are going to see that competition pick up in the second half of this decade. That's going to be coinciding with increasing tensions, because I think that it's highly likely that China will be making some sort of move against Taiwan in the second half of this decade. Uh, they can't afford to leave it much longer, because if they leave it much longer into the 2030s, the US and its allies in the Indo-Pacific region will be much better prepared to, to counter a Taiwanese invasion, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. So um, I think a number of things are coming together here. You've got increasing competition uh, in the second half of this decade in space. That's probably going to have a, a strong military dimension. By then, I think the US Space Force will have its act together and, and understand what exactly it's supposed to be doing. And the Chinese will be, I think, also making moves here on Earth in terms of establishing their goals around Taiwan and the South China Sea. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with the U.S. domestic uh, political scene. Um, I think it's less likely that Trump will get in. Um, so you could have a different Republican president, potentially with two terms. How he sees space and the and U.S. space strategy and space program, it will be interesting to consider. Does he, for example, prioritize Artemis? Or does he say, no, we don't need to do that. Let's do other things. There's a whole range of, of variables here that are coming into play that, that I think are quite interesting. But I'll let Namrata jump in, I think, on this. Yeah, sure. So I think uh, if you think about uh, the SLS launch and the Artemis program and, and put it within a grand strategic competition perspective, right? I think where China has a lead is in the narrative, right? So the China already said the narrative of why the moon is so intrinsically important for China, right? So if you think about uh, when Wu Wering and uh, Ouyang Xiang talked about why China needs to invest in a lunar program in 2000 and then went about establishing that program, the rationale for the program was two very critical things in their mind, right? And they are the original founders of this program and continue to lead the program today after so many, nearly two decades. One was that the moon has resources that China needs to invest in. And Wu Wering recently uh, had a really interesting interview that was published uh, at Oxford University website. It's available and it's in English, in which he pointed out that the uh, idea was that if China wants to become a lead actor in space, the moon is strategically important. China needs to establish a presence on Lagrange Point 2 for communication purposes, which it has gone ahead and done. China needs to invest in a capability that is able to assess the lunar far side, which China has accomplished, uh, have its own sample return uh, with 
demonstration of automated capability, which it has done. And then now in 2024, it wants to go to the South Pole of the Moon to assess the resources there. So it's all about resources, right? It's about understanding the composition of the moon for helium-3, for water ice, for aluminium, for iron ore. And that rationale is put very clearly. In comparison, if you look at the Artemis program, the core focus is science and exploration. It's very different from the focus of the Chinese space program, right? China has science. It has a radio telescope as we speak, looking out and listening in. But that's not the core focus. The core focus is the larger strategic resources idea. And that the moon is intrinsically important for Chinese grand strategic thinking vis-a-vis -vis the US, but the moon is seen as a pit stop to get to Mars. Right. So it's a very different strategic mapping that you see. And then if you look at the rationale again that came out of the uh, Biden administration's uh, space activities framework uh, document that they put out. Again, it's about Earth. It's about understanding the moon so that you can understand Earth. It's about space. It's about science, exploration. You have words like development and utilization thrown in, but that's not really the core and focus. Right. And then uh, the the I'll end by saying that I'm actually happy that the White House has put out a cislunar uh, strategy and where, again, the focus is on explaining why the moon is important for the U.S. and that the U.S. needs to have leadership on the Earth-Moon system or the uh, cislunar system. And so and yet again, in that document, what is fascinating is that to me, Unlike China, where the focus is economic resources development, right? For the U.S., it is science, technology, moon as a place that you go so that you understand how to get to Mars. And that uh, it's about development, utilization in, in collaboration with others, right? But it is not really clear. Uh, I have finished the executive summary. I'm hoping I'll get to the end uh, by say today, but at least the sense that I get in my conversations and in this document is that the end goal is not really clear, right? The means is clear. Okay, you're going there to get to Mars. You're going there because you like development and utilization of space. You're going there because you want to ensure US leadership. But what really is the end goal? Is it about space science or is it about utilization of the resources on the moon so that you can benefit from it and your society can benefit from it. There is no rationale like that. And I think that's where China is winning the narrative game in terms of this, uh, if I may call, getting back to the moon for establishing leadership and economic development capability. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, certainly my reading of what's happening with the, the Artemis program at the moment is that the sort of some of the more grander ambitions for a permanent presence on the surface have dropped off. Uh, they're now talking about a, a human tendon presence in a, a habitat that's kind of like a small yeah. capsule that's permanently on the on the surface of the moon. It's it's a it's kind of a, a drop off from where they started with Artemis. And it does make you worry that history is going to repeat itself as it did with Apollo, where we were meant to have Apollos 18 through 21 that would have led to a permanent base on the moon. It, that was cancelled. I worry that once we get past Artemis 3, uh, unless the commercial sector is prepared to step up and establish the infrastructure and establish the logistics, the later missions of Artemis will kind of uh, drop off the off the off the board, and it'll be just like a repeat of Apollo. And frankly, you know, doing a few missions on the moon. Uh, eventually getting a rover with, I think it's a part of Artemis 4 or 5 or something like that, doesn't prepare you for getting to Mars. Uh, it's not enough 
if they really want to understand about getting to Mars, there's two things they need to do. Because you know, firstly, if you go to Mars, it's, it's two years on the surface before you can come back. So they need to have a proper lunar base. Secondly, they do need to get serious about space nuclear power and propulsion because that's yeah. the only way we're going to get to Mars. Orion and SLS is not going to cut it. And I think that um, until the US bites this bullet and recognizes that they actually have to make a fundamental shift in their mindset away from the Apollo era mindset, they they won't won't be successful. So in the on contrast, we'll be seeing what the Chinese are doing in terms of their approach around the moon as an economic resource. And that will require a base and a permanent presence as well. Malcolm, Nimrata, thank you so much for your time. This has been an amazing discussion. Well, thank you. It's always good to chat with you, Laura. Yeah, thank you, Laura. Very interesting. And thank you, Malcolm. It was very uh, insightful to interact with you as well. That was great. I always enjoy your work, Namrata, so I'm looking forward to chatting in person in Sydney. Same here. <laughs> looking forward. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.